Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The author Kim Fay lived in Vietnam for four years, still travels often to Southeast Asia, and wrote the award-winning cookbook Communion, a culinary journey through Vietnam. Her new novel, Love and Saffron, is a celebration of food, love, and friendship. Plus, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with two of our city's roller derby stars, Gucci Mame and Switchblade Susie. They'll explain how the sport has become a showcase for serious athletic abilities. First, love, marriage, and music together on stage. WABE's ongoing concert series, Sounds Like ATL, spotlights talented musicians of this city. This month's lineup features Asian-American music with performances by Raquel Lilly, Ruby Bell, and the Soulphonics, and the indie chamber pop duo Takenobu. The concert will be at City Winery on Tuesday, April 12th. Nick Ogawa and Catherine Cook are the husband and wife duo of Takenobu, they joined me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having Thank us. You so much. The name Takenobu has family significance. Please tell us how it fits into your musical identity as a group. Yeah, so it's actually my middle name, and it's a combination of the Japanese kanji characters in my father and grandfather's name. And it loosely translated means iron will or self-determination. And so when I was starting out playing music, I decided to use that as a all-encompassing band name. <laughs> and metaphor. Yeah. And so now uh, Catherine and I perform using that same, same name, Takenobu. You're both string players. Nick, I saw that you studied Suzuki violin. Yeah. 
I was on Suzuki violin when I was three years old, I think, was when my mom started me on a little plastic violin with a, oh. <laughs> a group of other three-year-olds all squeaking away. <laughs> and how long did you study Suzuki? I think I did it for two years. That was when we lived in Princeton, New Jersey. And then we moved to Vermont where there was much fewer options. And there happened to be a cello teacher just down the road from me, a Dutch cellist named Juka Davidoff. And so I switched to the cello then. Oh, good. Catherine, your performance is with the Atlanta Symphony and Atlanta Opera Orchestra suggest you had more extensive classical training. Is that correct? That's, yes, that's right. I started playing the violin when I was seven. I asked my mom if I could play, and I took private lessons all through high school, and then I ended up going to college for it. I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in violin performance, so pretty extensive studying of the classical repertoire. Yeah. Where did you go to school? I went to Boston University. Great. And then uh, the University of Ottawa. Well... I was enjoying your music video for the song Peachy Keen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which references a cello. Yeah, we do a number of things to the cello. <laughs> the burning a bridge. And, yeah, just different angles and the cutting board that Catherine had with that's shaped like a violin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once again, I've run into this problem. Okay, you were getting your Jimi Hendrix song with this, right? Yeah, a little bit. It's funny, yeah, it's funny you say that. That was that was my first idea of um, trying to do something different with the cello was attempting to play Purple Haze on the cello, but it sounded, oh, wow. it sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, so long as you didn't light the instrument on fire. No, yeah, I didn't actually do that, yeah. I, I still have nightmares from that, much as I admire Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, pretty, pretty shocking stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another very cool thing in the Peachy Keen video is we see little statues of famous European composers. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, what was the inspiration for those little busts, you know, kind of rotating and then imploding or whatever they do? They were tchotchkes that I collected while on a tour. I found them, I guess they must have been popular at some point. Oh, but yeah. I would find them in thrift stores and took them home. And then they were sort of similar to the little Japanese clay Buddhist monk figurines that I had and just thought that in the sense that they provided this, you know, historical reference for me for for music, it would be fun to kind of parallel them animated 
dancing around <laughs> to our music. I love that connection. When I was a kid studying piano, my piano teacher didn't do this, but a friend had a piano teacher who came to the house, and each time a child memorized a piece, this teacher would give them a different one of those little statues. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Good motivation. It really was. I kind of envied the collection. And I actually have a couple. A friend brought me one from Vienna. You're right, Nick. They're fabulous tchotchkes. They're so fun. Catherine, you've worked in quite a range of genres. Mm Mm-hmm from classical, I mentioned the ASO and the Atlanta Opera Orchestras, to the heavy metal band Disturbed, and indie pop artist Kishibashi. Why did you want to explore and perform with groups from these diverse musical backgrounds? Well, ever since I was little, I always loved classical music, but it wasn't my only love. I was always, always exploring different genres and what was a new thing I could listen to. And I always really loved playing with different people who were not classical musicians. And so when I moved to Atlanta and started freelancing, it gave me the perfect opportunity to accept lots of work in different areas. And it's been really fun and really amazing for my musical growth to play with lots of different people. Yeah. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz speaking with Nick Ogawa and Catherine Cook of the indie chamber pop duo Takenobu. They'll perform at our next Sounds like ATL concert at City Winery. Nick, you also compose for film and TV. What are some of the scores we might have heard or some music you've written lately for video media? Yeah, so I did the score for a documentary that was on Netflix about a chef in Chicago called 42 Grams. And I've done a couple of other indie feature films that kind of pop on and off of streaming services. And I just finished doing the theme music for a show that'll air on the History Channel. Oh, I look forward to hearing the music. I know that Takenobu has been making music for quite a few years in Atlanta and beyond. Catherine, you started playing with Nick in 2018, and the collaboration developed from there. Would you tell us the story of how you teamed up? She giggles as I ask. So (laughs) the way we met was a little bit happenstance. It was a little bit fun. It was outside of the music realm. So we were both working for a dog walking company, at the time, and our mutual friend, Aaron, Aaron Auerbach, said to me when I joined, oh, there's another musician on our team. You should meet him. He's actually looking for a violinist to play with him in his band. And it just so happened 
that his other violinist had just moved away. So she introduced us via email and Nick sent me his music. And I had realized that I had heard his music many, many years ago uh, on Pandora. Or didn't you illegally download it on LimeWire? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, but I immediately recognized it. And so we set up a rehearsal and he had this really funny dog and I brought my dog over. Oh, so our dogs are definitely part of the story yeah, from part. the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just clicked and we had a lot of fun rehearsing and then everything followed from there. Yeah. Everything being. Being the music, the relationship, yep. several albums. Yeah. Marriage. Marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, love, marriage, music, dogs. It it doesn't get better, does it's, it? It's, yeah, it's true. It really doesn't. It was pretty magical from the beginning. Oh. Nick, how has the sound of Takanobu evolved since Catherine joined? It's definitely gotten better. Um, <laughs> she's uh, really raised the professionalism of the of the sound she's got such a great musicality and great tone and her tastes have influenced me a lot too she's you know very influenced by classical but also some folk artists that i hadn't really heard of indie folk artists that i hadn't really been familiar with and just being able to write music where there is a second voice in mind to have vocal harmonies be a a more integral part of the music has been a big factor in how, how things have grown since Catherine joined. Thank you. how moving to Atlanta opened up many possibilities for you. You are performing for the City Winery and WABE series Sounds Like ATL. From your perspective, or to your ears, how does Takenobu sound like ATL? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, people outside of Atlanta might not assume you're from here if they heard your music. It's not a hip-hop country exactly. or R&B. But maybe it's better to ask, what makes Atlanta the right scene for you both? Well, there is so much diversity in Atlanta. It is kind of a melting pot of people and culture. And I think that's represented in our music. It's very, very hard to pin down, I think, one genre in our music. Yeah. Yeah. Eclectic, more multicultural kind of mm. sound and, exactly. and uh, place. Yeah. This month sounds like ATL is 
highlighting musical artists from Asian American backgrounds. Nick, you told us your family is Japanese. Is your heritage important to the way you hear and create music? I think so. So my dad is Japanese, and I grew up speaking Japanese with him. And then I went to college here in the U.S., but when I was a junior, my dad was in Japan teaching at a school there, so I took a year off and lived in Kyoto with him. And that really shaped a lot of things musically for me and personally. But I spent a lot of time playing cello, and I taught English at elementary schools, and it was a a formative year for me. <laughs> so it definitely has, you know, influenced me perhaps more subtly than is possible to directly hear in the music, but it's been a big part of my life. Are there any particular works you're especially excited to share that you'll be performing Tuesday night? Um, we'll be playing a, well, at least one song from the new album. We haven't uh, been able to perform at all since recording it. So we were nervous to jump in and play all new songs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't admit that, but <laughs> we'll play a, a song called Wild Ride from the new album, I think. And it is a more kind of dreamy pop departure from the more folk roots album that we did previously, Conclusion. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. Hard to tell if it's off a show Slick veneer and lights glow In a line Nick Ogawa and Catherine Cook of Takenobu. They'll perform at City Winery Tuesday, April 12th as part of WABE's Sounds Like ATL concert series. You can find out more about this series on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, author Kim Fay tells us why her latest release, Love and Saffron, is a novel of friendship, food, and love. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The author Kim Fay has led what her character Imogen might describe as an adventurous, cosmopolitan life. 
The Seattle native lived in Vietnam for four years, still travels often to Southeast Asia, and wrote the award-winning book Communion, a culinary journey through Vietnam. Her new novel is Love and Saffron, and she joins us now via Zoom to talk about the book. Kim Fay, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. This story takes place between October 1962 and August 1966, roughly four years. And over the course of those four years, we see a friendship develop between Joan, a young woman who lives in Los Angeles, and Imogen, or Immy, an older woman in Washington State who writes a column about the outdoors for Northwest Home and Life magazine. Please tell us more about these characters. These characters are incredibly precious to me because, you know, all fiction has some basis in reality, at least for me. But these particular characters are very generously, I should say, based on people I know and love. Joan is a young food writer working for the newspapers in Los Angeles in the early 1960s. And she's based on the pioneering Los Angeles food writer, Barbara Hansen, who in the 1950s and 1960s began writing about different cuisines in Los Angeles at a time when nobody else was. She was writing about foods from around the world. She eventually began writing a column in the Los Angeles Times called Borderland, where she chronicled the Mexican food scene in Los Angeles. And Barbara is a woman of incredible culinary curiosity. She still is to this day. She has an Instagram account and you can follow her in her food adventures. She is, her, her curiosity has never waned. And she has always inspired me. And I've always wanted to find a way to write about her. And when I began writing Love and Saffron, that way just became abundantly apparent. She writes a fan letter to a woman in her late 50s on Camino Island in the Pacific Northwest. And she sends her a little packet of saffron. And this magazine columnist up in the Northwest is based on my great aunt Emma, who was not a magazine columnist, but was a very strong, incredibly smart Pacific Northwest woman. And as I began creating this character of Imogen, my Aunt Emma just came to mind and her qualities began to infuse this character's actions, her, her thoughts. And it was a pleasure to explore my great aunt's life and give her opportunities to do things that she may never have done in her actual life. I chose characters of very different ages because of the importance of those relationships in my life. I have dear, dear friends who are 20, 30 years older than me. I have dear, dear friends who are 20, 30 years younger than me. And, you know, it's always surprising because you always think the older teach the younger, but that's not always the case. And I, that's something that comes across in Love and Saffron is that Imogen learns as much from Joan as Joan does from Immy. 
And I think there's even one letter where Amy says something to the effect of, I'm old enough to be your mother, I'm older than your mother, but I feel more like we're sisters. Or is it Joan to Emmy? I think it's Joan to Emmy, but they do. They, And perhaps this is the nature of letter writing, because when you're writing letters, you're taking away all of the physical. You know, you're not looking at somebody every day and thinking this person is this much older than me or this person is this much younger than me. You're writing from your heart. And there are a lot of places in our heart that are very timeless or very universal. And those are the connections that the women make in their letters, which enables them to feel more like very close sisters as opposed to, you know, two women with extreme age difference between them. I'm glad you brought up the letters. The book is subtitled a novel of friendship, food, and love. It's also a celebration of magazines, newspapers, and above all, letters. Kim, please tell us why you structure the novel as a series of correspondence. Back to real life. Um, Well, first of all, I just love letters. I'm old enough to have spent my entire childhood up through my 20s communicating with people through letters, whether it was pen pals when I was younger, letters to my grandparents. Um, When I was older, of course, letters to boyfriends and friends who'd moved far away. But I I love the special intimacy of letter writing. There's something very intimate about sitting alone with a piece of paper and a pen and the thought of just one other person in mind. In addition, I have had an ongoing correspondence with the essay writer, Janet Brown, since 1995. We both worked at a bookstore together. I left to teach English in Vietnam. She left to teach English in Bangkok. And we began writing then, but our correspondence has, it's continued and it's been an anchor in my life. You know, there's a point where one of the women says in the book, nothing seems real to me until I write it to you. And that line came directly out of my friendship and correspondence with Janet. I feel the same way. When I get really busy, my life gets a little vague. I need to make sure that I write to Janet and then I, you know, I can anchor myself and bring myself back to earth. And so all of those things influenced writing a book in letters. And when I began writing in the letter format, it just felt so natural. And that's how the book flowed out. Well, it is a huge part of the joy of reading this book is in its structure. And as Joan and Imogen, or Imi as she comes to call her, as they discuss current events, We see the power of letter writing to console or be consoled. The first example is their exchange about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then other history lessons include descriptions of the Seattle World's Fair, Seattle politics, issues surrounding urban development, reaction to President Kennedy's assassination. 
and response to the civil rights movement. How do you use the events these women experience to further reveal their characters? It's a complicated question because I wanted this to be a very personal book and I didn't set out to put any of those issues or events in the book at all. But I realized as the women were writing to one another, if they were writing about their lives, they couldn't write in a vacuum. And then I had to really think what during this time period would be on these women's radar? Because it depends. Do you read a newspaper every day? Are you a radio listener? Do you get your information from Time magazine? You know, it's not instant gratification of the internet now where we are all bombarded with every bit of news. And so as I wrote, I started to think about what would be the issues affecting these women's lives and also affecting the way they grow as their relationship develops. And it was two part because it was partly about the women and it was partly about me. I was writing this at the beginning of the pandemic. I wrote it in the first three months of the pandemic, and I was very aware of what was happening in the world and also how important human connection was at that time. So for example, the Kennedy assassination, I was really thinking about how something on a national or global scale can affect all of us and how we can comfort one another. And in this book, as you mentioned, the form of comfort comes in these letters. And I loved being able to do that because we don't necessarily have that particular source today. I mean, people can still write letters to one another, but they tend not to. No, we like the immediacy of email exchange or text. But if ever there were an ode to the form of letters, it's this book. Thank you. Would you read a portion on page 47 that addresses just what we're talking about, beginning with the words, there is unequaled satisfaction, and maybe you'd like to set it up. This is a point at which the women have been writing to one another for a while, and they're beginning to understand the importance of their own correspondence to one another and how it is affecting their lives, deepening it and deepening this relationship. And so Amy, the older woman writes to Joan, there is unequaled satisfaction in composing words on a blank page, sealing them in an envelope, writing an address in my own messy hand, adding a stamp, walking it to the mailbox and raising the flag. It's like preparing a gift, and I feel like I receive one when a letter arrives, yours most of all. Hmm. I just love that. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is Kim Fay, the author of Love and Saffron. Now... Food is a <laughs> driving force in Love and Saffron. Will you tell us about the role of food in this story? I love writing about food, even though I would not call myself a foodie. I'm definitely not a great chef. I'm a, I'm a good cook. 
but I absolutely love what food does, not the function of, you know, sustaining us physically, but what happens when you put two people together at a table or whether you put two people together as they talk about their favorite dish. Or for me, when I traveled, anytime I sat down at a table, no matter where I was, you could find a connection. Food unites us in so many ways beyond just physical sustenance. And so as I started writing this book, again, I didn't know food was going to play such a significant role. I knew that it was going to play a small part, obviously, because Joan is a food writer. As I wrote, I didn't realize what I was doing, but at the end, I looked back and thought, aha, I've kind of put out my philosophy about what I think food can achieve. Because when we, as I said, when we sit down to a meal together, it just, it gives us the opportunity to have slow conversations. It gives us the opportunity to begin with common ground. You know, I like this dish. Do you like this dish? Have you ever had this dish? I've never had this dish. And it moves conversations. It launches them. And then they go from there into all sorts of different directions. You know, when you think about the end of a dinner party after four hours at a table, all of the ways in which you've gotten to know the people that you're with. And I just absolutely love that. And particularly in the lives of Emmy and her husband, Francis, food leads to their meeting new people. I guess you can say that about Joan, too, because she enjoys exploring different neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Food enables us to see how interested these characters are in other cultures Mm -hmm. and the respect they show people from backgrounds different than their own. Was that part of your intention? Definitely. That goes a little bit to what I was talking about. I think Once I began traveling in my early 20s, the way I learned about other people was through food first. And food was my, I guess, my gateway to other cultures. It was my gateway to understanding that we all are more similar than we are different, but that also the vibrancy of different cultures is really exciting. And to explore it through food is just the best way for me I can think of to do that. I also wanted to find a way, mostly for Emmy, because Joan is living in Los Angeles. So even though it's the 60s, it's still a very diverse world. But Emmy is living in a completely different environment up in Washington. And so I wanted to find ways to introduce new cultures to her that would make sense that would be natural, would be organic, that wouldn't be forcing her into situations just because I had something I wanted to say. And by doing that, it was really lovely. I I, I like being a participant in the discovery part of a story. It was so lovely to watch Emmy and her husband blossom through this because I didn't expect that. And it was, there's a scene with Francis that I won't give away, but when it happened, I just sat back in my chair and went, oh my goodness, that was wonderful. And I just sat with a smile on my face. So here you are a vessel. Very much so. You are a vessel for these characters, apparently. 
I found the most moving example of food in this story in the way it unlocks memories for Francis, Emmy's husband. What can you tell us about his history? Francis is based on my great uncle Frank, who I just, I'm sorry that I laugh, but it's his story is the cabin that they live in is the cabin that my great uncle Frank and great aunt Emma lived in. They did marry young for the reasons that I give in the book and they did not have children. But he, I remember all of my great uncles as very, very kind and quiet men. And I knew that they had all been in World War I, but I didn't really understand what that meant because no one talked about it. You know, I just knew the facts, but I didn't know anything deeper. And that just wasn't something people talked about back then. And so they were so lovely. And my uncle Frank was such a lovely man that when I wrote this book, I wanted to give him an opportunity to open up and to heal. And I don't know if he ever had that opportunity in life. You know, he was, I was very young when he passed, but I thought if I could do that in this book for him, I don't know, it just, it it felt like the right thing to do. Yes, Francis fought in France. He was Mm -hmm. part of the Somme and has what we would now call PTSD, shell shock, is how they described it back then. What does the saffron do for him? Without giving too much away, the saffron brings back a good memory from that time. You know, obviously it was a time of war and it was a time of very well, all war is brutal, but it was a very brutal time without any way of kind of healing from it afterward. And so the saffron brings back probably one of the only good memories he has from that time. And by doing that, it allows him to begin to open himself up in new ways. I noticed that the word love appears the first time in Joan's letter dated January 4th. She writes, my dear and beloved friend Imogen. So this is less than a year and a half from their first exchange. Yes. Will you talk about the way in which Emmy and Joan sign off their letters, sort of the crescendo that builds? This book was written very organically, but there were a couple techniques I would say that I used to show both the development of their characters and the development of their relationship. You know, for their characters, I use things, you know, it's very subtle, but the way I use contractions in their writing to show a more casual or a more, more restrained. So contractions to give either a more relaxed or more constrained reflection of what they were feeling as they were writing. And as they sign off, you know, they begin very formally. They're addressing one another as miss and missus because they have not met. But as their letters 
grow forward and as their relationship grows forward, their sign-offs become more intimate, more personal. And you can look at the flow of their sign-offs to see where they are in the development of their relationship. Without spoilers, (laughs) I am respectful here. Yes. What are some ways in which their closeness influences both the personal and professional lives of Immy and Joan? On a professional level, Immy is very much a cheerleader for Joan. She's excited by what Joan is writing to her about. And so she encourages her to pursue paths that Joan might not necessarily have even thought of pursuing on her own or might've thought nobody would care. So Emmy really, just simply by loving her as a friend and encouraging her, helps Joan's career grow. Joan is responsible somewhat for Emmy and Francis traveling. Joan hopped on a freighter and traveled to Asia by herself right after graduation from university. And so in this way, she serves as an inspiration because she's so open to experience. And I don't think that it's necessarily that she's inspiring Emmy and Francis to travel in and of itself. She's inspiring them to be open to new experiences. And so as a certain experience comes their way and grows out of the way they're growing, they take it because Joan has kind of shown them a way to be open. Author Kim Fay, more information about her book, Love and Saffron, is on our website, wabe.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The sport of roller derby has undergone many transformations over its almost 90-year existence. At one point, it was seemingly staged entertainment akin to professional wrestling. But since its revival in the early 2000s, the sport has become a showcase for serious athletic abilities. After a two-year pandemic hiatus, Atlanta Roller Derby returns to our city this Saturday, April 9th, at the Yara Shriner Center. Recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with two of our city's star skaters, Anna Benbrook, a.k.a. Gucci Mame, and Lisa Scherer, a.k.a. Switchblade Susie. Anna began explaining exactly what roller derby is. So roller derby itself, it is a high intensity, full contact sport on four wheels. Um, You have a group of five people from each team that are just skating through, trying to get points, trying to avoid getting hit, trying to get hit. It's kind of complex the first time that you come and watch it. It might be a little confusing, unlike any sport that you've ever seen before. 
but once you once you watch it, if you pick it up easily, it's just a really fun, really exciting, invigorating sport to watch just these strong individuals going through and scoring points and making excitement for the fans. Lisa, you've been skating with the team for how many years now? So Atlanta Roller Derby, as it is, started, I think, in 2006, and I began skating with them in 2007, so the second year after they started. So it's been over 15 years. Uh, I haven't skated the whole time. I did take kind of a break, and I was helping coach, and I was still part of the league. But yeah, I've been involved with this league for 15 years. I have to say one of the greatest things I've ever done. That's wonderful. And was it a hard reach to start? Were you already a skater or did you learn for Derby? You know, I actually grew up as a rink rat. So I had been a a speed skater and an art skater, which is basically like um, dance skating on quads as a child. But there was a long break, of course, um, when I was growing up that I did not skate. And when I came back, it was very similar to getting back on a bike. It took a hot second, but Hmm. it came pretty naturally after that. Yeah, I'm the complete opposite. Uh, I learned how to roller skate playing roller derby. I had never skated before in my life. And I just saw this wow. really cool sport that I wanted to join. And it was like a baby giraffe running into walls to stop <laughs> and just having people kind of help me through it all. So roller derby helped me learn how to skate and how to play the sport as a whole. She's an amazing skater now, by the way. That's so cool. And so Anna, did you go as a spectator to see Derby and get intrigued? Or did you have friends that were skating? Sort of a little bit of both. Um, I actually had a friend of mine from elementary school go to a roller derby game in Kansas City, Missouri. And she called me one day and was like, this is the coolest thing ever. It reminded (laughs) me of everything that you love to do because I grew up playing a lot of sports. Um, and just being very competitive and athletic as a kid. And, and I happened to see a flyer in my community advertising an event. And it just kind of all put two and two together and went and checked it out and said, okay, I'm going to do this. So it used to, as mentioned in the intro, be a little more over the top fishnets, mascara, let's just put on a show for everyone. And now much more of a serious sport, but there is still a very high entertainment value to it, right? Yeah, I would say over the course of all these years, we have definitely turned around from being a show to being real athletes that care about our sport and want to get better. And, you know, someday we hope to be in maybe the X Games or something like people, we, we are really serious about this fun sport that we do. Um, In the beginning, it was a lot of fishnets and makeup and kind of a show. We had a penalty wheel at some point where you would get some sort of weird issue if you got a penalty all that stuff is gone it's now like about the skaters about the sport um there are still a few kitschy things like our as you heard our names for instance um we still you know have some fun with it the team names are fun but in general we all take it pretty seriously as a sport now yeah actually it was under consideration for the 2020 summer olympics so it's, it's gone a pretty good distance since it started in the early ages. Yeah, no doubt. And so do you think it'll be up for the Olympics in the future? Yeah, that's the hope for sure. Fantastic. So when someone goes to a bout, can you describe the atmosphere? The atmosphere of a bout is, it's a lot of fun. The bouts that we have here in Atlanta, it's family friendly. We have vendors, we have halftime performances. We typically do a double header. So we'll have one game and then we'll have kind of a break in the middle for people to, you know, get food, go to the vendors, whatever the case is. And then our second game. And during that middle time frame, we usually have local entertainment, musicians, 
Um, we've had like dance performances. Um, we just try to tap in with our local community and provide them a space to just show who they are and what they're doing. So it's, it's a whole to do for a lot of people. We have our bouts at Shriners off of Pont. So it's like a smaller space, very intimate. And it's just, it's so exciting. It's invigorating people cheering for different teams and for different players. And it's just, it's the full to do. So let's get back to how the game is actually played. You said that there are five people from each team. One of them has a star on their helmet. Can you explain who that person is in relationship to the game? Yeah, the person that has a star on their helmet is known as the jammer. Uh, That person is typically the point scorer. So that's the one that you want to watch to see how the points are being scored. And we skate in a counterclockwise direction around the track. The rest of the players are known as the blockers. They don't have any stars on their helmets, just the regular helmets. And those are the individuals who are trying to hinder the opposing jammer from getting through and from getting their points. So you guys are playing offense and defense at the same time. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, we've mentioned that it's a full contact sport. It is pretty aggressive. What type of protection are you guys wearing? We are fully protected. We have a helmet, we have mouth guards, elbow pads, wrist guards, knee pads. Um, Some individuals even choose to wear like padding around their hips or wear shin guards or any additional protection, but that's not required. And have either of y'all ever suffered an injury? In oh, play? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I broke my wrist not too long ago. I was jumping in the air and somebody hit me while I was in air. So I landed really oh. awkwardly, broke my wrist. I continued the game though. And I actually won MVP that game. So oh pushed through gosh. with the pain, found out that oh. it was broken the next week. Oh my, Lisa. Many years ago, I did uh, sprain my uh, MCL. And so I was off, I was on crutches for about six weeks, but that fully healed. And then a few years back, I dislocated my elbow and essentially broke it, but we didn't need to do surgery. So I didn't have an arm for (laughs) eight weeks or so, but generally we're pretty safe. We don't get a ton (laughs) of (laughs) injuries. But they do happen. It is a like like we said, it's a full contact sport and we do everything we can to stay safe. But from time to time, you'll see an injury just like you do in any other sport. Very true. Yeah. I've been playing since 2013 and I've only ever had one broken bone. So yeah, not, not too bad. bad. That's great. For people who want yet another reason to be intrigued to go and see about the building that you guys play in is one of the most beautiful and historic buildings in the middle of our city. Can you speak a little bit to the Shriner Temple? Yeah. So we started out at skating rinks and we would have people come there and we started looking for places that were more in Atlanta because we had started out in Stone Mountain. We wanted something more locally um, centralized. So we reached out to Shriners and they have a very large rec center behind what you would see at the front of the building with the dome and everything. Behind it, there's a large rec center that fits our track. And there's also stadium seating. And it's a great cause, of course, if you don't know about the Shriners, the Europe Shriners Center, you should look into it. They do a lot of great work for children. So it's been a great partnership. That's great. How much did you miss this for the last two years? So much. Mm, (laughs) Definitely a lot. It was really kind of my only form of exercise. (laughs) So I was like, oh, Lord, I need to get back on skates as soon as possible. Skaters Lisa Scherer a.k.a. Switchblade Susie, and Anna Benbrook. 
a.k.a. Gucci Mame. At Latter Roller Derby's next bout is tomorrow, Saturday, April 9th, at the Yarab Shriner Center on Ponce de Leon Avenue. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., exhibition director Annabelle Moshe takes us behind the scenes at Imagine Picasso, the immersive show at Pullman Yards. Plus, Cat Power stops by ahead of her upcoming show at Variety Playhouse. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.